0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Anier. How are you feeling, Mark?
1: I feel like a really bad celebrity impression. Like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> like, ready? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Like I'm ready. Kermit the Frog, mixed with Christopher Walken... <laughs> How's
0: that? <laughs> they could I now. I now. All I want to hear is Christopher Walken doing Kermit the Frog. That's <laughs> one up. of those. It's one of those impressions that. <laughs> no. Oh, I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> you had it there yeah. for a second. You. T- yeah. You
1: went from Kermit the Frog into Christopher Walken. <laughs> you could add. You could add one more layer to it. That's t- that's two. You could go. Uh, then you quote someone else. Like. <laughs> I, <laughs> I did not have. Sexual relations with that woman.
0: <laughs> What's the thing that Christopher, Christopher Walken always says something that pe- when people do their Christopher
1: Walken impression? Well, oh, I, I don't know. Damn.
0: There's like one word it, that's it's, definitely Christopher Walken.
1: Yeah, it's just that cadence. Uh, mm-hmm. I forgot to ask you how you're feeling.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm feeling, uh, I feel like a dish towel that's been wrung out onto the floor. I've got this, uh, I've got this job right now, this editing gig that is like full on and, uh, I just cleaned my apartment for the first time in like a week. I feel like I'm all, oh, I'm at, grindy. you know, yeah, it was, it, it's been nuts, but it's good. Um, so this time we pre-prepared sort of like a little game this time because it's come up on the podcast before, um, that we wanted to talk about shitty book covers yeah, but but this isn't going to be ironic shitty book covers.
1: This is actually book covers that we hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talked about the we talked about our favorites. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about our favorites. We've like mentioned the ones that we've uh, you know we, that we've wanted to do this for a while. But you know, today let's talk about the books that you if you I mean if you if it's one that you own, it's one that you hide at the back of your bookshelf because it's sure. hideous or, or one like like
0: <laughs> I brought up on the podcast before that um, you know like living in urban areas, you know, you like your book is a, is a fashion choice and these are fashion faux pas. Like even if it's a good book, (laughs)
1: like if it has a shitty cover, it's like, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let's have Google images up and ready so we can, you know, get our instant reaction. My Google images tab is open. Um, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll go first. So this, this is a very recent one. It's like, uh, a reissue from February by the New York Review Books classic series. Okay. Uh, I want you to look up John Williams' Nothing But the Night, 1948. Okay, John. This, and this cover, this cover's so goddamn funny to me. Uh Oh my God. <laughs> it's just a painting. It's just a painting that shows how about yeah. you describe it, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like a it's it's a painting of a of uh man or woman a very androgynous figure in bed um but it looks like an x-files gray man or something
1: (laughs) so so i I saw a twitter thread bashing this when it like came out Mm -hmm. uh twitter user at pierre menard said it's a pretty good cover if you like looking at ugly ass crap (laughs) he also (laughs) he also said it he also said it looks like uh, deviant art Bobby Hill being depressed in 1674. <laughs> yeah, so. it does look
0: like Bob. Yeah, it looks like if someone <laughs> shaved Bobby
1: Hill's nose into a triangle. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh my god! It is a terrible cover. It's yeah. like it's not even that it's terrible. It's that that the the fa- the face that's in the foreground is just not well
1: (laughs) i've always have you read
0: stoner by john williams because i've always wanted to read it i've i've
1: heard it's the the perfect book i know a a perfect book
0: yeah we really need to get on that because it's been it's been in my background for years like whenever people read stoner they like it like takes over their lives yeah all right what do you got all right my first one is um is actually a series of books um, but you're gonna be familiar with them just right out of right out of the gate. But I think you'll know okay. what I'm talking about. But it's the Penguin Random House editions of all Tom Robbins books. So if you look okay. up Penguin Random House for Tom Robbins, they have reissued like his entire catalog, basically. But every single one of them is just a solid color with terrible font as the title and then a tiny picture of what the cover used to be oh
1: yeah yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> and this is my initial impression of tom robbins who we have talked about on the podcast before is such an amazing writer like he's right up our alley with that you know with um hysterical realism and stuff like that and yeah but these books are these covers are dog shit like yeah the- whoever came up with them at penguin random house shame on you
1: that's a travesty for still life with Woodpecker, especially. That's an awesome cover. And I know. They, the, made they, it, they made it. They shrunk it to a little postage stamp on the front. <laughs> I know.
0: They, they took every like decent halfway decent cover struck it to a postage stamp, and then it's like a solid color with like the worst font in the world, just like typed <laughs> out. And it's like, and it's like, ugh, it's just so terrible. And this is my first impression of him. That's why I'm saying it pisses me off because, yeah, I think that you, I think that Tom Robbins came to me through a recommendation through you, and then I would see him on the shelf, and I would be like, I don't know, it looks like shit. <laughs> you know,
1: um, I actually own, I actually own one of these, the uh, Villa Incognito
0: i think i own um, one too i think i have um tibetan peach pie or something
1: yeah oh that's horrible yeah. yeah especially with still life because that one like the the original cover like has a frame to it so they shrunk the frame itself yeah. and put it like oh that's that's awful it's awful it's terrible shame on fire you. fire the Penguin bastards <laughs>
0: I would be pissed if I, I often think that when I'm, when I'm thinking about authors too, like, you know, I think we're in, you know, a different era of books than has ever been before. But if I was an author, I would want it to say like, I get to control what's the cover and everything because I would be so pissed if I was him. I'd be like, these are like the most mass circulation out there of me. And I also feel that way about book jacket summaries too. I feel like the authors don't really get a say. And like sometimes when you read a summary, which I try to avoid, it'll give away like what's like on page 200.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, that's what I was what I saw when I uh, was researching this. There are some books where, you know, they're like crime or mystery novels and like they accidentally spoiled the whole plot like yeah just on the cover it's like
0: when the murderer turns out to like be that, his yeah. son
1: you're like what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your turn next one i thought of was i mean this one isn't too specific either i guess you call it a series or it's more like a genre mm-hmm. but i hate the like generic self-help slash entrepreneur slash like mentor book covers like the modern ones like you know what I'm talking about. Just like think about a Malcolm Gladwell cover. Mm-hmm. It's like plain white background. You got yep. the large text for the title, slightly smaller title. Like like chicken soup for the text. soul. Yeah, yeah, and some co- some sort of like clip art bullshit right in the middle. And you yeah. uh, maybe remember there used to be like a website 10 years ago, I think it's down now, but it's called like the Malcolm Gladwell book generator. Can you look uh, that up on d- Google Images? <laughs> damn, I want to see this thing it's like uh you know they just ran with that format like there's a book a fake cover like the paradox paradox why right okay a yeah no yeah if you look great at
0: mystery if you i don't know if the website still exists but yeah if you look at the the google images it's really funny yeah the paradox paradox
1: <laughs> the cheers effect why everyone knows your name
0: yeah the snipping point stretch <laughs>
1: plop oh, just funny. any word yeah so, the, so those are awful, and it, I, I don't know. Like, I guess it started with him probably, but it just. It I've never of crea- read creativity. Malcolm Gladwell.
0: I've never. He's too like Oprah Book Club for me, which is probably really insulting to him. But I've just never. I, I know like the only like concept of his that I know is that ten thousand hours. Ten
1: thousand hours. Are... Yeah, me too.
0: Outliers. <laughs> he's probably a great writer, but he's probably also a victim of his success for lit nerds like us yeah um what i guess time will tell you know because he's yeah sort of in vogue now um you ready for my next one yeah so my next i think my next one actually has to do with sort of like the process of localization and um I'm, i'm actually coming from it from an outsider's perspective because i'm sure people in other countries feel this way but I don't like the UK illustrations of the original Harry Potter editions because the US editions and the way that they're painted and illustrated on the covers of all the Harry Potter books are so synonymous to me with a release of Harry Potter or like how I felt when I was reading Harry Potter that when I see the original UK illustrations, I hate them.
1: I don't know if I even know
0: those yeah you oh, probably God. don't yeah it's like it's like not what you're used to because harry like our Harry, our u.s harry potter is like sort of this like they're almost more painted and and the uk ones are more drawn yeah yeah I see so that. yeah when i see the uk editions of harry potter i'm like that's not my harry potter like that's like <laughs> someone that's like some other weird bullshit like i don't not like canon them. No. no, yeah, and, and, I, and what's so funny is that that's such bullshit because there's someone else in the UK that sees the US one and they're like, that looks hideous. Like, my <laughs> Harry Potter is this. But I also think that we were probably getting it at a later date than them where they started to realize that it's not as childish as that. Like, I feel like the UK
1: ones seem more childish. Yeah, they definitely look, I mean, because it's like, uh, it looks like colored pencil instead mm-hmm. of paint.
0: Right. And ours, I mean, it's just so completely, and, and it, and it also speaks to the effect of marketing. I mean, this whole conversation has the effect of marketing. Yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I just associate Harry Potter with the U S illustrations. So when I see the UK ones, it, it like pisses me off. Like, I think that they're really, really,
1: <laughs> but you think there's some, uh, British people that are like, Oh yeah, um, absolutely. If think I, our, like, they, my friends think our Harry's too posh. No, yeah, my friends from London
0: <laughs> hearing this will probably be like, you're insane. The
1: U S ones are. This.
0: What's your next one.
1: All right. Uh, so this one, I, I have a penguins classic edition of crime and punishment. Okay. And it, it's, it's more of my issue with the continuity. And <laughs> it has a photograph of like St. Petersburg in the winter on the cover. Mm hmm like you know there's snow and right yep. coats and everything but yep, the novel is it. like the first line of the novel is like on an exceptionally hot evening early in july <laughs> <laughs> right like right, like right, it's, right. it's 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 about us a super hot summer like that's where it right. takes place and so just, they're they're
0: projecting they, the image of like cold russian murder yeah
1: yeah <laughs> they're like it has to be cold
0: yeah no i get that that's so yeah, a
1: bad choice bad choice shame
0: on again shame on penguin yeah although penguin classic editions are like come on like that's like the thing that we've talked about but like when we were talking about our favorite features of our favorite bookstores like that the penguin classics in the bargain bin is like the shit yeah yeah um just don't look at the cover just don't look at the cover don't associate yeah. the cover um my next one is actually a cover that i don't think is a bad cover but i have a story related to it so everyone has the jd salinger catcher in the rye with that white matte cover right it's just a white cover that has
1: like a rainbow ribbon on the side oh no i have the one with the orange and like the uh what is it merry go round horse on the cover or whatever.
0: Oh, okay. Well, in there's a version of Catcher in the Rye that's I I believe to be the most circulated cover where it's just white matte on the front. It says Catcher in the Rye J.D. Salinger and there's like a little sort of like rainbow in the corner, not a rainbow but like a stripe of color like in the corner. Yeah. And my association with this cover, I don't think it's a bad cover, but I do remember so when we were reading this book in school and I don't remember, you know, middle school or early high school or something, I just remember seeing some kids would have this book and the white matte like nature of the cover would reveal that if you were like really gross and like didn't wash your hands because some kids would have like grimy like fingerprints like all over it. And like I just I just remember seeing a few kids books and being like why the fuck is your book so dirty talking about the school's books that like. No, I like yeah, I mean I guess they were the school's books but some kids like would come in and and I just remember seeing like a few of them that had like that nasty like gray black gunk that like comes off of Uh. your hands when you like when you're like if you've had like a like almost like you read a newspaper but these kids weren't reading newspapers they were not washing their hands (laughs) so Uh. their their cover of jd silent that's what when i see that book i think of the nasty fingerprints that i've seen all over it (laughs) when i was in class and i was like ew like what so i love that book and i do i respect the cover but in in the days of unhygienic uh high school it was like ew oh god (laughs) so you gotta you gotta think about this stuff people
1: yeah yeah just (laughs) wash your hands uh i got another penguins classic here Um, oh man you're ripping them apart yeah i got another new york review books too uh gargantua and pantagruel penguins classics penguins it's not Classic. a bad cover okay. not a bad cover it's just a painting of some dutch people or whatever but like it would be decent but the reason that it sucks is because of what is out there that could have been the alternative like right. all of the Gu- yeah. all of the gustav dore like drawings mm-hmm. any, any of those they're You're all incredible right. yeah and they just took something that wasn't really Related. Like, yeah, so know.
0: so a bit of explanation if anyone doesn't know, and I definitely this has been in my mind to do on the podcast. I've never I I haven't prepared to do it yet, but I mean I guess it'll be a race to the finish line which one of us does Gargantua and Pantagruel. But um, you've read it, right? No. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I just
1: have the book. Okay. So it's yours to do. Did did, did you, you, maybe you got it because of me? Is that maybe? Yeah, me? yeah. I know about it from you and from... Uh, King Crimson. Gen- Gentle Giant, actually.
0: Yeah, Gentle Giant. Okay, yeah. I just yeah. got confused. King <laughs> Cr- I got King Crimson and Gentle Giant confused. So Gentle Giant was a 1970s prog band that wrote a lot of songs about... Gargantua, really nerdy shit. Like Gargantua and yeah. Pantagruel are these two giants that a, that a like a 15th century monk named François Rabelais in France wrote about and it's just hilarious. Like if you think that uh you know Monty Python was original in any way then you can forget about it because François Rabelais was was on that. Um, from the beginning and I just love that so much but you are right the the cover is dog shit compared to if you could get the rights to do some of the Gustav
1: um illustrations yeah it's just some Dutch Dutch guy mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know yeah. Who is not even tall I know yeah
0: Bullshit. good call good call but <laughs> Gargantua and Pantagruel are is definitely worth checking out um, yeah probably one of the oldest I would say Gargantua and Pantagruel might be one of my on the, not one of my favorite books, but uh, highest up versus how old it is.
1: Oh, on that scale.
0: yeah, yeah, like that ratio. Yeah. Um, so I have one more. Do you how many more do you have?
1: Uh, I have a bunch of quick
0: hitters. okay. Well, my no, quick already. hit mine this one will be a quick hitter too because I talked about it on the podcast before, but I have to say the most recent, and worst book, one of the worst book covers I've ever seen is the brand new Haruki Murakami novel Killing Commentador. The book jacket is okay, but once you take the book jacket off, it looks like an eighth-grade science book and it's a piece of shit. And the people <laughs> the people who publish that book just I think that like I talked about this on the podcast, but I think they rush to to publish Murakami because we're all so hungry for his English translations and stuff, but you know, you had a few months to look at that book cover, and it's just crap. So that yeah. is my condemnation.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm gonna give you my, my quick hitters, and I just want you to look them up. Give me your instant reaction. All right. All right. All right. Lightning Type round. In, uh, all right. Uh, NYRB Pinocchio. Pinocchio. Okay. Oh God. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> what's NYRB? That's the New York Review Books.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. What
1: the fuck are these people doing?
0: They have so a the lot New York, of good covers. The New York Review Books Pinocchio is a, the bark of a tree with a terribly photoshopped pair of eyes. <laughs> you know what's a theme here, actually? Photoshopped eyes. This is, like That's why Killing Commentadores book cover sucks. And uh, that's why this book cover sucks. Yeah, don't do
1: it, people. Don't Photoshop
0: eyes, people.
1: Okay. (laughs) All right, next one. Uh, I Sing the Body Electric, uh, Centaur. Uh, Again by NYRB? No, no, this is an old Bradbury book from the- Okay, I I think it's a 70s cover. The Body Electric, Centaur? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, what? Whoa, that's like a meme, man. <laughs> we
1: definitely have to tweet all these out, but it's like it's yeah. so crazy.
0: What? Okay, it's so a, the
1: It's like like a gray centaur. His yeah. hands are also another like version of his body. So his hands have two arms and a head and a torso.
0: Yeah, his arms are it's, his it's own hideous. body.
1: And it really does look like
0: something that someone made as like a meme.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. It's a vaporwave whatever. Jesus. Um all right. Uh, look up Kelsey Grammer so far. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> it's his 1995 autobiography. That's oh wow, he looks different. like the uh, it, he looks like he's okay. So it's a picture of Kelsey Grammer, which me and
0: Mark both adore is Fraser Crane. But um, it looks like he's like on the side of one of those like jazz cups. <laughs> yeah, you know that like There's classic like
1: 90s our- design that's like the squiggly. Uh, yeah, from Cran. Like, it looks like it's Cran too. Yeah. It, that's just awesome. He looks like he's uh, in, like, a music video or something. I want a big uh, poster of that. Okay, that's that's actually the last f- for my quick hit. So, yeah, <laughs> let us know uh, what your f- least favorite fucking book covers are. Yeah, everybody
0: listening, our, our wide and growing audience, let us know what your <laughs> ugliest book covers are. Double digits, maybe. Okay, so uh, it's my turn to go first this week. Yeah, yeah, you're up. And um, I guess I'm going to start out with a question. I'm going to go Mark-style. And instead of blurting oh. my book out, I'm going to start out with a question, Mark. Um, what is um, an essay or a collection of essays that you've read that has affected you the most? Hmm. If there is one. Or you could say, you know uh, I don't really read essays. Fuck you, Trevor. <laughs>
1: I don't know so much about essays yeah uh, i i ah uh, dude drawing On the, the blank. spot i'm I'm crumbling, yeah, yeah, it's fine,
0: so basically <laughs> i like I've read some
1: books of essays I've read um probably i'm gonna blurt, i'm gonna blurt some shit out in like five minutes, just yeah once it hits okay. you, yeah.
0: I, my, my, my kind of relationship with essays is very spotty as versus, you know, novels, obviously, we read like a ton of novels. So my relationship with essays has been very spotty, like some of the only ones that I've read are like extremely famous, like George Orwell down and out in London and Paris is is like essay ish. And um, stuff like that. But my new favorite collection of essays, and I think it's going to stay in my heart for a a little bit, is my book this week. And it is the 1979 collection of essays. Well, it was published in 1979, but it's a collection of essays by Joan Didion called The White Album.
1: I've heard a ton about this.
0: Yeah, so... Coming out, basically moving out to California, like we said before, um, I've moved like a thousand times. So basically coming out to California, people st- sort of just, I think in the kind of like creative kind of circles that that I'm involved with, just like friends and family and stuff like that, uh, you know, friends who are readers and and people who are really into sort of cultural culture and cultural criticism. As I got closer to California, I feel like I started to hear more about Joan Didion. Um, And that's for a very good reason. She is someone who is defined by California, but also has defined California for a lot of people. And the White Album is a collection of essays that spans basically decades. Um, What you're reading is a book of sort of Essays that were collected together in 1979, but they range in being published from the 60s to um, some of her journalistic writings um, before the 60s. The main um, essay and the title of the book is called The White Album, and it was compiled from 1968 to 1978. So it's a 10-year essay, which is really amazing for someone like Joan. Um, I feel like... I mean there's just so much to say about her and I'm gonna dig into it a little bit. The first thing that I'll say is that I'm actually not this is the first time on the podcast that I'm doing a book that I'm not done with yet. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I also mean, if it's essays. That's Yeah. Fine. Yeah, that well that I was gonna get to that point is that I actually feel like that doesn't matter because it is it's a book that you read in chunks and um, I'm still like eighty percent through, so I'm gonna claim it. Yeah, and I'll definitely be finishing it, but um I, I can go into um, her biography a little bit. The first thing that I'll say, too, is that a huge part of my research for um, today's podcast is um, also it is a night is a is a documentary that's actually on Netflix. So pretty widely available to, to most people from 2017 that her nephew made. Um, Joan is now an an old woman. She is. 84 years old uh, and she was born in 1934. Um, but her nephew, who obviously is no spring chicken, if, if she's 84 um, made this documentary in 2017, it's on Netflix. It's called the center will not hold. And if you want to learn about truly an American treasure that I really didn't know too much about before I started reading the white album, then just go watch the documentary if you want the cliff notes version. But um, she seriously is a, an American treasure. Like, I can't believe how emotionally intelligent and influential she is. Um, and and to, to be honest, the more that I've been reading her, the more I've been wanting to speak with some older people who may have kind of been aware of her as she came up through the world. So let's talk a little bit about her biography and, and who she is. I also have some criticisms of her as well. So um, mm-hmm. I want to get into that. But... Um like I said Joan was born December 5th 1934. She was born in Sacramento, California. Um part of her family history is very baked into California, almost in like a in like a John Steinbeck kind of way. Her family has roots back to people who crossed the US like during Manifest Destiny. So we're talking about like yeah. covered wagons and like <laughs> so sh- so she really is part of um part of California history, not only because she writes so beautifully about California and the world, but because her family kind of came out here as frontiersmen. Um, she, you know, I'm gonna skip around her whole life and base you know she she grew up in California. She ends up marrying um, John Gregory Dunn. Um, they have sort of like a, a really intense and famous literary relationship. He published. He was a writer, like basically they were this couple that even though they had very different styles, they were sort of a part of the um, gonzo journalism movement of sort. You know, he was publishing books like he published a book about Vegas during a dark time in his life. Um, And and it's sort of in that vein of like, you know, like Hunter S. Thompson is doing the Hell's Angels and Joan is writing about, you know, the experience of California in the late 60s and, and early 70s. Um, and they're sort of, that's some, that's an aspect that I want to talk about in Joan's life is that she seems to be someone who has an incredible sort of talent for seeking things out, but also seems to have an incredible amount of luck in the sense that she was in the center of things. Uh, you know what I mean? Like in the, in the white album, it's almost hard to reconcile some of her writing because it almost feels like she's dropping names Every once in a yeah. while, it's like, it's like, oh, you know, uh, um, Janis Joplin came to a party at my house. And it's like, well, come on. Like, how am I supposed to, you know,
1: um, reconcile oh, it's like, that's, that? that's what made it interesting.
0: You know, yeah, well, sometimes like, like an essay starts out like that. And it's like a little bit annoying, sort of like, well, okay, like, you know, where do we go from here? Yeah. Um, you know, if that's how the essay starts out, but it really is true that the more I've learned about her life, I think that there is some amount of luck, but also a large amount of effort and kind of inserting yourself into things in that gonzo yeah. journalism way. Because, you know, there's other essays in the White Album where she's like hanging out when the doors are recording an album and stuff like that. <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, damn, she was like in the center of things. There's also... um, the the essay that takes the title of this book, The White Album, is partially about her um, emotional breakdown um, in her late 20s and early, early 30s. She was in a mental institution for for a short bit of time. Um, but also, I don't want to think of a mental institution, maybe like a psychiatric hospital. But, yeah. um You know, she she was also deeply in, you know, she um, was involved in the Sharon Tate murders, like the Charlie Charlie Manson-like kind of thing. She knew Sharon Tate. She interviewed uh, Linda Kasabian, which which was one of the people who was there, um, you know, during the murders. And she had a few, like, really weird kind of moments where she was, you know, hosting Kasabian at her house, cooking her dinner after the Tate murders and stuff like that. So she's has this weird ability to be in the center of things which i think is
1: (laughs) is, the white albums like a is it is it is it the beatles reference or is it it
0: is it is a reference to the beatles it is um basically she writes this incredible essay over a span of 10 years that has to do not only with her own emotional trauma but it also has to do with the Sharon Tate murders, the Manson family, and, and you know, those murders had references to the White Album, to Helter Skelter and stuff yeah, like Helter that, and, and how it's like a, a deep kind of thing. And um, the, the thing that's amazing, especially about reading Joan right now, is that she's one of those people that it really just sinks into your heart and into your mind that history is cyclical. Um, we're in a very disaffected time in America that's very political, um, and very sort of like hopeless and sort of politically dark. And when you're reading her essays, and if you watch the center will not hold about, you know, the late sixties into the seventies, you'll recognize stuff. You'll be like, this is happening now. It's happening again. Um, and in a weird way, it's almost comforting because some of the stuff that was happening then was so extreme that what's happening now seems just as crazy or, you know, just as extreme. But, um. Yeah, what's that saying? His- history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yes. Yeah, like exactly. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that is a good quote. I forget who said that, but it
1: definitely yeah, is a too. good
0: quote. Um, I want to read some quotes from the documentary, um, The Center Will Not Hold, which I recommend everyone check out. Actually, it's ironic that I haven't finished the White Album, the book, because I also haven't finished the documentary, but I have a reason. Um, so basically the reason why I haven't finished the documentary, I've watched about half of it is because it started to get into her later works that I haven't read yet. So it was so exhilarating to watch the documentary and hear quotes and, and get more context of the stuff that I've already read of her essays and novels and stuff. But, um, I had to stop once it was getting into later work of hers because I was like, oh my God, I want to read the work first. Like This is like a documentary <laughs> yeah. that I want to kind of process along with. It. I actually did that with um, one of Mishima's biographies as well. I'm about halfway through one of his biographies, but once they started to talk about his novels that I haven't read yet, I was like, hell no, I'm not going <laughs> to you know, listen to this. So um, some quotes from the documentary, a guy named David Hare in the documentary, and I'm paraphrasing here him here a little bit, but one of the direct quotes is, you know, Joan was someone who came forward. She was writing a lot of essays for different magazines and different places and stuff like that. But once her essays started to get collected together, he said, the idea that you could write the history of your own time is something that she sort of defined as a journalist and became an icon for, which I think is really great. And then I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, you know, she defined the use of personal essay that could be like fiction and be just as powerful. And she did it like no one else. So I completely relate with what he said there. Um, I feel like when I'm reading some of Joan's writing, it does feel um, fictional, but Mm -hmm. it's not. And the thing, having a relationship to her... And, you know, like, just think about all the ways that I'm talking about her, you know, as an author and stuff like that. Doesn't it sound like I've like I know her and like I've been sitting around with her and stuff like that? Like (laughs) my relationship to Joan, it really does when you read an essay and the white basis. Yeah. yeah, The White (laughs) Album is, um, you know, it's a book that is not very long. Um, The edition that I'm holding in my hand is probably one of the most wide in circulation and it's from Ferrer Strauss and, um, it's only 220 pages or something like that. But this book takes you as long to read as a 400 page book, because when you finish one of the essays, you sit down and go on Wikipedia and do a little bit more research for one, but then you also just sort of live with it. Like when the essay ends, you're sort of like, damn. And you like, can't read the next one. Um, because of the way that they were published and everything like that. Um, another before I read some, I, I want people to get a flavor and I want you to get a flavor of how powerful her writing can be. So I'm actually just going to read some large chunks, probably larger than I've ever read from a book on the podcast. But one more quote from the documentary that I want to say um, before I get into that is from a guy named Hilton Alls, Hilton Ailes. He's in the documentary and, um, this is a perfect quote that I think is is good for Joan Didion as well. He said, the weirdness of America got into this person's bones and came out the other side on a typewriter, which <laughs> is 100% true. And, and something that I think is really interesting, like I said, as I got closer to California, I got closer to reading Joan Didion because... California is a weird place. I mean, everyone will say that, you know, oh, it's like, you know, full of weirdos and hippies and all these, you know, different personalities sort of coming together. But there's also something about California from reading uh, the way that Joan writes about it and about America that I think is is very different from the East Coast. Like, Mark, you and I are from Connecticut. And there, you know, there's a few really good quotes from Joan where she's basically says, you know, um, She's always been reconciling with herself what California is, and some of her essays are kind of trying to untangle that. Whereas, I feel like when I read that, I was like, for better or for worse, I mean, maybe I'm being naive, but I feel
1: like I know what Connecticut's about because I've lived there. Yeah. yeah um, I think a lot of people would maybe have that sentiment about their, you know, hometown.
0: Right, like, like, oh, I know it. But her kind of one of her central messages is like, no one can know California. Like, it's really <laughs> bizarre, um, which I think is is sort of telling and, and really nice. Um, one thing that I will say before I dive into these two quotes that I'm going to read, um, just to give you guys a flavor of her writing, is that I'm not reading from some of the more heavy essays in in the White Album for two reasons. One because I think some of her heaviest and most political writing and most kind of his, history repeating itself writing, you really have to reconcile with yourself. Like, I don't want me to be the person reading you, you know, like like I it was kind of ironic. But, um, uh, you know, I, w- I happened to be reading one of these essays, um, her essay on the women's movement in the 70s during um, when it was the the what is that how the international women's day or like women like women's day basically yeah. and um you know i'm not going to read from her essay the women's movement one because i don't know you know how reconciled i am with the feminist movement and, uh, and and what my voice as like a white dude contributes to that but just reading some of her more heavy stuff it really is more of a personal experience than someone just reading it to you and telling you it's good Um, there's so much to unpack there that, you know, it's worthy of its own book, you know, uh, talking about her essay, The Women's Movement, which is here in the White Album. So I will say that I'm reading from some of the more surface stuff, but that's something else that I also adore from her is that she does write things that are sort of just funny. Like there's an essay in here about James Pike, who was um, one of the like sort of original TV evangelists, like a priest that was on TV. And her analysis of him and his life is not only hilarious to me, it's dark, but it's also pretty hilarious. Like, you know, she, she brings forth a lot of things. Like I said, that when you read the essay, it's sort of like, okay, now I'm going to dive into Wikipedia and kind of learn a little bit more. And if you put herself, if you put yourself in the historical context of when she was writing, she's just a genius. She's an absolute genius. And, and also really inspirational. Like um, she's 84 now she's in this documentary in 2017 and her mind is is super clear, like during the interviews and stuff, she reads um, stuff from her own essays, and the way that she chooses words and stuff like that. she's really inspirational. Um, so I'm going to dive into this quote this uh, This is a a few paragraphs from an essay that she wrote called "Many Mansions," and it's about the governor's mansion that Ronald Reagan built in California but never lived in <laughs> so i mean what can you say i mean that's california i mean that right there is the embodiment of california she talks about this governor's mansion that no one has ever lived in and it's just amazing
1: the mcmansions yeah it is a
0: it's like one of the original mcmansions and it's just so good so i'm gonna butcher some names in here and you're gonna wonder about some historical context but let's just dive right into it so all right From 1903 until Ronald Reagan, who lived in a rented house in Sacramento while he was governor, $1,200 a month payable by the state to a group of Reagan's friends, the governors of California lived in a large white Victorian Gothic house at 16th and 8th Street in Sacramento. This extremely individual house, three stories and a cupola on the face of Columbia, the gem of the ocean, worked on the molding worked into the molding over every door. It was built in 1877 by a Sacramento hardware merchant named Albert Galatine. The state paid $32,500 for it in 1903 and my father was born in a house a block away in 1908 this part of town has since run to seed and small business the kind of place where both squeaky Fromm and patricia Hearst could and probably did go about their business unnoticed but the governor's mansion unoccupied and open to the public as state historical landmark number 823 remains sacramento's premier example of eccentric domestic architecture As it happens, I used to go there once in a while when Earl Warren was governor and his daughter Nina was a year ahead of me at C.K. McClatchy Senior High School. Nina was always called Honey Bear in the papers and in Life Magazine, but she was called Nina at C.K. McClatchy Senior High School, and she was called Nina, or sometimes Warren, at weekly meetings of the Manana Club, a local institution to which we both belonged." I recall being initiated into the Manana Club one night at the old governor's mansion in a ceremony which involved being blindfolded and standing around Nina's bedroom in a state of high apprehension about secret rights which never materialized. It was the custom for the members to hurl mild insults at at the initiates, and I remember being dumbfounded to hear Nina... By my 14-year-old lights, the most glamorous and unapproachable 15-year-old in America characterized me as stuck on herself. There in the governor's mansion that night, I learned for the first time that my face to the world was not necessarily the face in my mirror. No smoking on the third floor, everyone kept saying. Mrs. Warren said, no smoking on the third floor or else. So, end quote. Um... So in this and I think I chose that quote for a few for a few reasons. One is to say, remember how I said she always has this incredible luck to seem to be in the center of things. <laughs>
1: Yeah, right place, right time.
0: Right place, right time. So it's sort of like she ends up writing this essay later in her life about the Mick mansion that Ronald Reagan built. But it happens to be a part of her personal history that she used to spend time in what she considers the more legitimate governor's mansion in Sacramento. Yeah. (laughs) So it's sort of like this weird. She has a way of sort of starting to write about something. And then you're like, wait a minute. Like you are part of the story. Like this is like crazy. Um, It's more like journalism. It, yeah, it's more it is like journalism, but also another thing that I think that that story that a point that that story makes and something that I think is maybe one of my biggest indictments of, of Joan Didion is that I feel like there's a secret sort of, almost like a microwave background or like a secret sort of background to her life that isn't mentioned very much in that. And I think that she would probably cop to this is that she to me, she has the flavor of the upper middle class. Or maybe even the upper class, where basically a lot of her essays, um, it, it almost like in the documentary and in the biography of her life and in and, and through some of her essays being involved with some of the most famous people from her era, is that there's almost this overwhelming sense that everything is always going to be all right. I mean, I don't really know too much about her. I think her husband's family was also relatively wealthy, but... Basically, the idea that these two writers were living in California, they happened to have a house on the beach, by the way. And um, there's almost, I I feel almost like a little bit of an ignorance towards economy with some of her biography where it's basically like, well, then we were in Honolulu. And then I was in Paris (laughs) and I was working for Vogue and I went to college and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, some people whose essays I read, like I mentioned before, George Orwell down now in Paris and London a lot of a lot of people's essays have a sort of acknowledgement of economy or something like dire straits or something um and to me that's completely absent from joan didion's writing it's like every time i'm reading her i'm basically like so you were sort of rich
1: yeah yeah i mean (laughs) it, it it would be worse if she you know went the opposite way and feigned some kind of struggle no. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I like, there's no Just kind write of about what, you know, yeah. yeah,
0: there's no fakeness there. But yeah, I, I, like, like you said, write about what you know, but also at the same time, like, I'm, I'm glad I'm, you know, I, I will continue to explore her works, I think, for the rest of my time here on Earth, because there's a lot to read and a few novels as well as essays. But I do find that there is sort of, I do think that there is some sort of background impression that I have of like, yeah, but you're never really too worried about money, are you? You know, like that kind of yeah. thing. Um, so, nice. that, that's it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. My turn? Yeah, your turn. All right. Uh, so, to start, I have a trivia question for you, Trevor. All right, um, lay it what, on me. What did Roger Waters once say was a gas, a hit, and a crime?
0: Ooh. Roger Waters, a gas, a hit, and a crime? I don't know, his own career? <laughs> no. <laughs> think, think lyrics. Oh.
1: Money. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a crime. Uh, share it fairly, but don't take a slice of my pie. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, money. You can't have too much of it, but you can't have too little. Uh,
0: no, you, you don't can have too stutter. much.
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely up You know Star right? Yeah I know coins, coin. coin counting machines Yeah yeah So they take like 12% off the top If you want cash For your right. jar of coins Like it's kind of a rip off you're, you're exchanging money But you're also like You're paying for a service At the same time uh, There's a lot of things like that in life And the book that I have this week Kind of explores that idea Like the worth of money But also the worth of people And uh, so the opening line Is as follows A sum of money is a leading character in this tale about people, just as a sum of honey might probably be a character in a tale about bees. The sum was $87,472,033.61. So this was a lot more money in 1965 when this book was published. Now it's, you know, a little over the yearly salary cap for an NHL team. Um, (laughs) But anyways... Uh, this year or sorry, this week I'm talking Kurt Vonnegut and okay. his nineteen sixty-five novel, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater.
0: Whoa, okay. Never heard of heard Kurt heard of Kurt Vonnegut, obviously never heard of this
1: book. Yeah, what are your thoughts on him? Do you have a favorite book of his?
0: I'm I, I'm I'm way too ignorant. I've read Slaughterhouse Five but years ago and um it's basically someone who I should know more about, but I really have only skimmed the surface.
1: Yeah. Um, that's all right. I mean, yeah, everyone's frame of reference is going to be Slaughterhouse-Five, like no matter what, like, mm-hmm. still, I've read it like five or six of his books and that's still, you know, how, how it's, that's just what it is. Uh, Cause I mean, that's, that was about his experience and all of his other books kind of mimic that to like there's always callbacks it's like the vonnegut universe right um so yeah this is, okay this is gonna be a really weird thing to say but look at the main picture on his wikipedia page
0: okay kurt vonnegut <laughs> wikipedia page
1: yes kurt. so do you think that the old man version of you might end up looking like him slightly like when you're an old man
0: oh you're 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 comparing my image to kurt
1: vonnegut <laughs> Maybe I, mean, I okay. need to grow a mustache. Yeah, exactly. You need a mustache. But this picture is him when he's 50, but you know, he was a big time smoker. So right. maybe if you're five, seventy. 60, 65, 70, yeah. we, we <laughs> it's did the hair in the glasses. We both did hair big time glasses. smokers, by the way, Joan is like every picture of Joan Didion. She's got a cigarette in her hand. <laughs> nice. Um, Sounds like, you know, Joan, I, I should have mentioned this before, but the vibe I got from Joan Didion was, uh, Joni Mitchell and I, I bet that's fair right I don't know California yeah. no
0: yeah yeah absolutely like like I would be you know again coming towards California I started listening to Joni Mitchell more and it's yeah those two go hand in hand at least in my personal journey
1: nice okay I, I should have shouted that out earlier but anyway <laughs> uh so yeah Vonnegut he's widely known widely read Slaughterhouse-Five of course mega famous quoted endlessly Uh, personally, I just think he was, like, a cool public figure as a writer. He was born in 1922, Indianapolis, went to Cornell, dropped out, joined the army, fought in World War II, of course, and, uh, like, from Slaughterhouse-Five, captured by the Germans during the Battle of the Bulge, held captive in, like, a meat locker of a slaughterhouse in Dresden, Mm -hmm. uh, survived the Allied bombing of the city. And, you know, I feel like the fact that he wrote such a unique and kind of gripping anti-war novel about his horrific life experiences almost causes a disconnect with the fact that he really lived it. It's strange. Yeah. Like it's peppered with fantasy and science fiction. Like it's that same escapism we kind of talk about with like Tolkien and other authors who soldiers. Fought.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's really interesting. What's interesting too, is that like Hemingway had that whole like soldier life, but it he didn't go that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean these guys lived it for for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean I guess it depends on what exactly happens, what you exactly experience. But yeah. um, so after World War II, you know, he got married, he had three children. Later in life, he adopted his sister's three sons after both of the uh, parents died. Mm-hmm. I think I remember reading about that in the intro to one of his other books. So yeah, he had a bunch of kids. Anyways, dude, um, I think jo-
0: I think Joan Didion adopted her daughter too. Jesus okay continue
1: (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah kindred spirits i guess in in some way uh god bless you mr rosewater um it has the alternate title pearls before swine Mm -hmm. so this like that turn of phrase is taken from the bible and it basically means like don't waste good things on people who will not appreciate them uh the full quote is like Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Hmm. And that's basically Jesus, like, warning his disciples to preach only to receptive audiences. Right. And Vonnegut, he kind of basically explores this concept in, like, a very satirical way that's focused around wealth. Okay. So, the $87 million I mentioned before. This is owned by the Rosewater Foundation. Not by the Rosewater family, but the Rosewater Foundation. Mm -hmm. In this way, they avoid paying taxes on the family, you know, fortune. Right. Basically live off the interest, which is like three and a half million a year or something. Yeah. But uh, the story, it's centered around Elliot Rosewater. He's the son of a senator. He's the last in the main Rosewater family line. So he's the beneficiary of the fortune. He's a World War II vet. He's a volunteer firefighter, and he's a huge alcoholic. And um, the main thing that sets Elliot apart from his family is that he has somehow through his experiences, which are, you know, kind of similar to the experiences of Vonnegut himself developed a social conscious. And he's, you know, starts thinking about redistributing his wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like relentlessly charitable with his, uh, and this is a quote, unlimited amounts of love and limited sums of money. And, you know, for his, eccentric and relentless efforts of charity and goodwill he's labeled as crazy like his his family just doesn't get it mm-hmm. um so that's kind of the main story but there's also i mean the, the main story comes from there's like a lawyer who seeks to prove that Mr. Rosewater is insane so he can get the family fortune transferred to some distant Rosewater cousin Mm-hmm. and of course you know taking his cut along the way like the fucking coin star machine <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> so but to be honest like the plot in this one is all over the place but that's the main idea but it's the it's the prose and the style that stick out and there's a lot of quotes from this one that you may have seen like when the main character Mr. Rosewater gives a speech at a baptism you probably heard, maybe maybe heard this quote before he goes hello babies welcome to earth it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter it's round and wet and crowded on the outside babies you got a hundred years here there's only one rule that i know of babies god damn it you've got to be kind (laughs) i don't think i've ever heard that but it's good (laughs) (laughs) but that's like you know that's the vonnegut that i know like most people know like from from reading more of his stuff it's you know sweetness but it's futility it's like a charming kind of black humor he usually puts forth all the effort to maintain positivity, like, like a dog or like Bob Ross or whatever, like his support comes in through his words, but he also keeps you like informed on the downside and the dark side of things. Right. Because of, you know, the reality of his life. Uh, But this book, it has a lot of connections to what I've been calling the Vonnegut universe. Uh, if you want to call it that too. There's a lot of characters that are either related to, resemble, or are just like the same characters from his other books. And this one actually has the first appearance of the fictional sci-fi author Kilgore Trout, who was featured in a lot of his books and definitely featured in Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. And uh, Elliot Rosewater, much like Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse-Five, is obsessed with his work the Kilgore Trout's novels and you know it shapes or supports his worldview
0: was there is there is there an author that Vonnegut is obsessed with like Asimov or something
1: uh there's someone so Kilgore Trout is like a um he's he's prolific but also very unsuccessful like his books are kind of like passed around that's his like thing Mm -hmm. and I think he has like an author friend who has like he's got like a fish fishy last name that's why he like made it Kilgore Trout as like the fake author name I think oh, okay. he has an author friend who's like sci-fi guy but like not successful or whatever okay. but he has cool ideas I guess but anyways <laughs> like Kilgore Trout his novels they're always like only touched on a little in Vonnegut books Like you get usually you get the title some kind of absurd synopsis and maybe like a little more but I want to read a section here that references one of Trout's books called 2BR02B or to to, be, or to be to be are not like yeah. not to be like <laughs> someone <laughs> should someone should write a kilgore trout novel like i like think a, someone has yeah <laughs> yes yeah, like someone's expanded on one called uh, venus in a half shell or something which is also from this book but uh, i don't know if they did it justice or not i gotta check that out anyways so here's a section from the book talking about trout trout's favorite formula was to describe a perfectly hideous society not unlike his own and then, toward the end, to suggest ways in which it could be improved. And to be or not to be, he hypothecated an America in which almost all of the work was done by machines, and the only people who could get work had three or more PhDs. There was a serious overpopulation problem, too. All serious diseases had been conquered, so death was voluntary, and the government, to encourage volunteers for death, set up a purple-roofed ethical uh, suicide parlor at every major intersection, right next door to an orange-roofed Howard Johnson's. There were pretty hostesses in the parlor, and barca loungers and muzak, and a choice of 14 painless ways to die. The suicide parlors were busy places because so many people felt silly and pointless because it was supposed to be an unselfish, patriotic thing to do, to die. The suicides also got free last meals next door. And so on. Trout had a wonderful imagination. One of the characters asked a death stewardess if he would go to heaven, and she told him that of course he would. He asked if he would see God, and she said, certainly, honey. And he said, I sure hope so. I want to ask him something I never was able to find out down here. What's that? She said, strapping him in. What in the hell are people for?
0: Hmm. Wow. That, like, first of all, there's a lot of, like, classic Vonnegut in there because, one, he's, he's you know, obviously predicting the future. <laughs> in, <Yes. laughs> in a little like, like right now people are saying oh like you're gonna have to have a phd to work on the machines that run mcdonald's you know in the future yes. so it's like yes. <laughs> that's definitely like some future prediction there and then i love the i mean there's got to be some sort of futurama connection
1: yeah yeah and then, like you know that's why this book rocks like it was predicting this sort of thing it's from 1965 but you know that so what i just talked about becomes like that theme becomes the focus of the book And Mm -hmm. the question that Elliot Rosewater faces is how to love people who have no use. You know, this was 1965, of course, become even more of an issue, like you're saying, automation and AI replacing human effort and therefore human value in capitalist society. Yeah.
0: And and it also, to me, has sort of echoes of like universal basic income theory, you know, of like, eventually we'll just have to support people for no reason
1: because machines will do everything. Yeah, it's coming for all of us. Um, But Elliot Rosewater, you know, he sees this in middle America, like the factories and the farms are automated, increasingly automated. Many people are left without purpose. They're what he calls the discarded Americans. And so he, he develops his social conscious. He wants to show these people that they're worthy of love. And, you know, he's seen as crazy for it. And there's really, there's a really wild part of the book where Rosewater, like his wife has a complete breakdown and Mm -hmm. is diagnosed with what the doctors call Samaritrophia. Uh, I want to read another quick section here. Samaritrophia is a suppression of an overactive conscious by the rest of the mind. You must all take instructions from me, the conscious shrieks, in, in effect, to all the other mental processes. The other processes try it for a while, Note that the conscious is unappeased, that it continues to shriek, and they note too, that the outside world has not been even microscopically improved by the unselfish acts the conscious has demanded. They rebel at last. They pitch the tyrannous conscious down in Oubliette, welds shut the manhole cover of that dark dungeon. They can hear the conscious no more. In the sweet silence, the mental processes look about for a new leader, and the leader most prompt to appear whenever the conscience is stilled, enlightened self-interest does appear. Enlightened self-interest gives them a flag, which they adore on sight. It is essentially the black and white Jolly Roger, with these words written beneath the skull and crossbones. The hell with you, Jack. I've got mine. It seemed unwise to me, Dr. Brown wrote in Norman sharp, uh, that that part doesn't matter, you don't have no context for that, uh, to set the noisy con- <laughs> conscience of Mrs. E at liberty again. Neither could I take much satisfaction in discharging her while she was as heartless as Il Koch. I made it the goal of my treatments then to keep her conscious imprisoned, but to lift the lid of the oubliette ever so slightly so that the howls of the prisoner might be very faintly heard. Through trial and error with chemotherapy and electric shock, this I achieved. I was not proud, for I had calmed a deep woman by making her shallow. I had blocked the underground rivers that connected her to the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans and made her content with being a splash pool three feet across, four inches deep, chlorinated and painted blue. Some doctor, some cure. Whoa. So his wife, you know struggles with this charity that Elliot feels, you know, this compassion for mankind and it's treated as, you know, a disease on her part and she just, her mind can't, can't handle it. Um, and that's, you know, it, it eventually, it gets to Elliot too. Like he, um, uh, I I guess I'll, I'll talk about it more in a second, but I, I guess I wanted to talk about like how, like, how do you think generosity and, compassion and that stuff even work under capitalism like what about like the term like corporate social responsibility like doesn't that feel weird yeah for for real
0: and i and i've kind of had a a little bit of a window because of my career i worked for like a giant corporation for many years and i've had a little bit of a window into that of like there's this sort of um well, first of all, every single corporation that you've ever sort of thought of as a corporation has an entire
1: division called corporate responsibility. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and they have like a what a set budget for charitable purposes. Yeah, no. And yeah, like, it's you
0: know. like a it's like a mutually um, benefit, like some would say mutually beneficial relationship of like, we make X amount of money. So then we declare that we're going to spend X amount of money improving our public image but also like giving yeah. back to the community so it's like it's this weird it's return thing on like, investment <laughs> it's return on investment and it's also this weird sort of thing where some places do it some places do it better some places do it worse some like some you actually like kind of feel and see the benefit and others you're sort of like oh it's just like posturing like amazon would be a famous one where it's like they probably don't have enough corporate responsibility going on because everyone like hates them yeah <laughs> i'm sure someone yeah, on the amazon if you're on the amazon corporate
1: responsibility team i'm sorry for that but it's just, it's just the truth do better uh, yeah it's like you know well what what event should we sponsor to produce like the most brand exposure <laughs> like yeah no it, that's clients? exact
0: like, that's the name of the game
1: yeah yeah which stuff can we write off in our taxes like let's hire let's spend half our budget on a photographer to show us volunteering <laughs> or like you know uh let's make one-time use t-shirts that we all wear for the picture like shit like that uh whatever (laughs) anyways you know this book uh it it covers a lot of ideas like that it covers a lot of ground um, but it's an incredibly quick read it's like 200 my edition's 270 pages Hmm. and it's like really spaced out it should only be like a 200 page book um but you know it's just a great satire on money and greed and human nature and Like it's that sweetness, but futility where like Elliot Rosewater is like a fascinating character and like some very touching moments on display as to show his role as like the public shoulder to lean on. Like Mm -hmm. he essentially like sets up camp. He's like, okay, middle America. Like he goes to uh, Indiana. He like sets up and works as like a volunteer fireman, but he's also like has like a hotline that anyone can call with their troubles and mm. he just like is relentlessly positive and charitable and like uh is a very very complex character it's, it's really cool um i definitely recommend it i'm not sure where i'd rank it in the vonnegut catalog i've read maybe six of his books now i'd say this one makes the top three nice I don't know. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's ha- it sounds like a really I mean it sounds like a like almost like you would want to give it as like a book recommendation to like Bill Gates. <laughs> you know, yeah. like like he's that type of like ultra philanthropist, ultra, you know, moneyed. He he would probably yeah. probably blow his mind.
1: Yeah, and you know the book the book is not it's not just Vonnegut pointing out problems, like he does propose solutions in it. Um, and they're just, you know, veiled solutions like behind you know, prose and, and, and the plot and story and everything. But, um, yeah, definitely recommend it. And yeah, Vonnegut's awesome. Check out a lot of his stuff and it's like the Vonnegut universe, you know, once you read a few of his books, like you get it right. Like this is what he does. Um, I've heard a lot of people complain about this book because like, sometimes he does like a theme with how, uh, he sometimes does like a theme with how he's writing. Like, I don't know how you would describe it, but like, uh, okay. Here, here's like a, let me know what you think this is as far as like grammar. Okay. Like the Senator stormed out of his office comma was gone. So he has like a theme where he does that. Like comma was something or like that sort of thing where it's like, it's almost like, a f- weird fragmented sentence and All right. i think i, I think, I
0: think um about this i that that comes up i can definitely sympathize with sometimes when people are like annoyed with stuff like that like sometimes like i love cormac mccarthy as a writer but i think he sort of sticks to his
1: guns of no punctuation yeah. like too much yeah, there yeah. punctuation was the fucking word i was thinking of trying to think of <laughs> yeah terrible.
0: like and, and <laughs> uh and, and i think too like um you know, I don't know if we can go a single podcast without mentioning Pynchon, but nope. Uh, you know, he Zero does days. that. He does that a little bit. And then also, like, David Foster Wallace would like piggyback on that. Like, they'd have that sort of thing where, like, they start a sentence with, like, you know, something really weird. And, and I feel like, yeah, they have that, like, sort of yeah. an affectation. So it's, yeah, they it's like something break, to get
1: used to. They break the rules of grammar in the, in like, but for the name of style, kind of. Yeah. Which, I mean, whatever he just like kind of made it a theme of this book like he did it a lot in this book but he doesn't do it a lot in other books it's kind of just whatever he was just feeling that but anyways um yeah i like it and uh i've also one more thing like i've read some places that vonnegut's one of those authors that you're like you age out of or whatever like what do you think about that like that concept like oh uh yeah i don't know he's all cheery and whatever and like compassionate but are you supposed to like i don't know (laughs) no i i know the concept
0: you're talking about i'm trying to come up with ones that i feel like i've aged out of but
1: i people say that about tom robbins too they're like oh yeah i loved it when i was a teenager i visited again and it was like crap like how could i be compelled by this
0: (laughs) i think some people are being too dramatic with that i mean especially like someone with such a you know like the caliber of like the ideas that Vonnegut is trying to like represent. I think that people are being maybe like a little bit too dramatic with that concept or like too ready to, to leave someone behind. Like mine would be ones that would be like, well, I'm just like, like, I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, like Brian Jack's like that fantasy author where like everyone is like a rabbit and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, I can see it going for that, but I think maybe the ideas that Vonnegut puts forward or like someone like that, like a Tom Robbins or a Vonnegut, is like their ideas are like really deep. Like you're not going to like age out
1: of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that. that's my opinion too, but yeah. I guess I just wanted to get, try to understand the perspective of people that do But who knows? Maybe, maybe when yeah. we're still making this podcast, when we're 70 years old, we'll be like, I can't believe we used to read that <laughs> douchebag pension. Yeah, where's the cutoff? Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's your it's a post midlife crisis. You're like, oh, yeah. I only read Clancy novels. <laughs> <laughs> like I want to know. Eighteen hundred October. Yeah, military. Set my watch to military. Read Clancy novels. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyways, yeah. So that's Vonnegut, and that is God bless you, Mister Rosewater, nineteen sixty five. Sweet, good job. Uh, so. Thanks, uh, anyways, everybody. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Shady Book Reports. Uh, you can reach us. You can find us every Sunday. We release new episodes on Spotify and SoundCloud. You can hit us up at SBR the Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, again, Spotify, SoundCloud, SoundCloud Gmail. Uh, send us your comments and hit us up with those ugly book covers. We want to see them. Yeah, for
0: sure.